Well, good morning, College Park. <clears throat> um, during the first service, uh, right before uh, the last song, uh, my tech guy, uh, actually Tyler right here, you can say hi to Tyler right now, um, uh, pulled me aside and said, hey, Chris, the internet's down, and uh, we were supposed to stream the sermon today, and uh, so I had that feeling in my gut of, oh boy, all right, here we go, Lord. <laughs> and so I grabbed the, the sermon that I prepped two years ago, uh, almost exactly, for situations like these uh, in which the, uh, the internet fails us and technology fails us. And, uh, and so instead of hearing from Pastor Mark Brogop at the North Indy campus uh, in First Peter, we're going to have a sermon uh, that the Lord in his great sovereignty wants us to hear today. And, uh, and so if we really do believe in God's sovereignty, this is not a surprise to him. And uh, in fact, from first service, there were some uh, ordained God moments after the service because of this. Not because it's polished, because I haven't looked at this in two years, um, but because his word never comes back void. And, and so we believe in the authority of God's word here, not in well-polished sermons or rhetorical persuasion. And, uh, and so I, for one, this morning am so thankful uh, for God in, in his might and his power uh, and in his word. And so uh, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Luke chapter 7. Uh, Luke chapter 7, we're going to be in verses 36 uh, through 50 this morning. This is one of my favorite passages in scripture. And um, we're going to get a picture this morning of what biblical repentance looks like. Uh, from, from this woman in Luke uh, chapter 7. So uh, I'm going to read this passage and then pray. And as I pray, uh, and I hope you do this every time I preach, but pray for me uh, as well as we journey through uh, this passage together, uh, that the Lord would, uh, would minister to us and, uh, and, and that his name would be lifted up. So let's, uh, let's pray together. God, we do thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for the power of your word. God, we thank you that we can trust it. Lord, we thank you that you are a trustworthy God, that you are a sovereign God. Lord, we thank you that you have uh, a plan for us this morning, and that this plan that you have was formed before the foundations of the world. Lord, you knew that the technology would fail today. And uh, so, Lord, I pray that we would demonstrate our belief and our trust in you by leaning into your word today. And so we pray that Jesus, in all his might and love and grace, would be exalted today as we look to a difficult topic of repentance. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's read uh, Luke 7, starting in uh, verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner... When she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. Jesus said, a certain money lender had two debtors. 
One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This is the word of the Lord. So as we uh, journey through this passage together, I want to point out just five ways that this woman uh, gives us a picture of repentance that I believe uh, has no rival in all of Scripture. So there won't be any PowerPoint slides, obviously, today, uh, but there are five uh, points to uh, the sermon uh, today of what biblical repentance looks like. Uh, Corn Pop's cereal has been voted one of America's most well-known cereals of all time. This is not a surprise to many of us, but what's interesting about Corn Pop's is that over the last several decades, there has been extensive work done in the area of rebranding. That Corn Pops, as many of you know, started out being known as Sugar Pops. Then in 1978, their name changed to uh, Sugar Pops because the concern of health and what their name communicates to their buyers. So then in 1986, they rebranded again, and they changed their name to Corn Pops, and strategically left out the name Sugar. Then in 2006, their brand changed once again to just Pops. And yet, despite all of the effort put forth in rebranding, according to the Wall Street Journal, Pops was named 10 brands that will disappear in 2012. Now, the idea of rebranding can be really, really exciting. And yet at the same time, making decisions about reframing and rebranding a name that has been known for several years can be very, very difficult. Sometimes it's necessary, especially when you consider like the American telephone and the telegraph, it makes sense in the era of the iPhone to rebrand. Sometimes a logo needs to be changed, a letterhead needs to be changed, sometimes a name needs to be changed or a sign, and sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes the rebranding is necessary, and sometimes it's not, and sometimes the rebranding means nothing at all. Think for a moment about Kentucky Fried Chicken. When they decided to change their name to KFC to make it sound better and more healthy, even though nothing about the menu or recipe changed at all. Kind of makes you feel better about choosing KFC rather than Kentucky Fried Chicken, But when you change the name of Sugar Pops to Corn Pops, you're hoping that health-conscious moms will be more willing to buy their product, even though nothing about the ingredients changed at all. That nothing about the essence of that cereal was altered, only the name, only the external appearance, and the name changed. Now, when companies like KFC and Corn Pops begin to rebrand themselves, 
It's because they, as a company, have begun asking themselves the famous question, now what? Like, where do we go from here as a company? That they've reached a point where they need a new direction. And so this question, now what, is an extremely important question. But what I want to put before us this morning is that question, now what, is not just an important question for companies needing a new direction, but this question, now what, is an extremely Christian and biblical question to ask ourselves right after we sin. See, we've all been there before, where we've said something, we've done something, maybe we've thought something, maybe there was a, a certain kind of motive in our heart, and we're we're sitting there thinking like, wow, like I, I just sinned. I just did something to offend God. Now what? Like where do, where do I go from here? That it could have been something small or something big. But that question where you've, you finally realize that you've messed up, you've offended God, and the guilt starts to fester, you start asking that question, okay, where do I go from here? This question of of what do I do now after I sin is an incredibly important question to wrestle with. Because on one hand, we know there's grace, like we know God forgives sins, and yet what are we supposed to do with the sin that we just committed? Now what? So this same question that you and I wrestle with is the same question that companies like KFC and Sugar Pops wrestle with to rebrand themselves, and yet I wonder if our understanding of repentance is more closely aligned to the rebranding strategy of corn pops, where we may be be more concerned about our image and the external appearance and actually changing the essence of who we are. That we're okay with rebranding ourselves as long as we don't actually have to repent of our sin. However, I think the gospel of Jesus Christ calls us to more than just rebranding than just focus on the external, but the gospel calls us to true repentance, where it changes our mind and our behavior and our hearts, that we need a more biblical picture of what repentance actually looks like. And so one of my concerns that I'm trying to lean into this morning is that I think we as Christians focus so much on trying not to sin, and as we should, but I don't know if we spend enough attention on, okay, what do we do after we sin? What do we do after we commit an offense to God? What does biblical repentance actually look like? And so I want to point out five things that this woman demonstrates for us to give us a better picture of biblical repentance. Before we jump into those five things, I just want to set the scene uh, real quickly here, the context, the scene that we have before us is a Pharisee who invites Jesus over for dinner. And at this time, Jesus was a rabbi. He was a teacher. And so to have a rabbi over for dinner was a real honor. This is a big deal for the Pharisee. But then there's an interruption that occurs. A woman enters the scene. And not just any type of woman, but this is a, this is a categorical sinner. In fact, the type of phrase that Luke uses to describe this woman was often used of women who would give their bodies over to men sexually in return for payment. They also know that this woman had her her hair down, which at this time culturally was a huge no-no, that having your hair down was scandalous. And so in this scene, we've got Jesus, we have a Pharisee, and we have 
this woman. And so the scene unfolds before us with this woman taking center stage, demonstrating biblical repentance in five ways. Here's number one. This woman repents by approaching Jesus. She repents by approaching Jesus. Look with me at verse uh, 37. It says, And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he, Jesus, was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. So the first thing I want to point out about this woman demonstrating repentance is that she figures out where Jesus is and approaches Jesus. We see that she learned where he was, and she went to where Jesus was. Now, why? Like, why would this woman be drawn into Jesus? I mean, I can't think of a a bigger difference between Jesus, who is the holy son of God, and then this woman, who is a categorical sinner. And yet there was something inside this woman that clicked where she thought, you know, this would be a good idea, even though I'm, I'm completely living in sin, to go and approach Jesus. And I wonder why. Like, what was it for this woman that dawned on her to immediately go see Jesus? Well, I think the reason is, is because she knew who Jesus was. That she knew, not just up here in her mind, but, but in her heart, that Jesus would extend forgiveness. That Jesus is the kind of person that would love her. That there was something about Jesus that was inviting to sinners where sinners felt a freedom to approach Jesus. There's something about Jesus, and we read all throughout the Gospels about this, where sinners kind of felt safe and accepted by Jesus. I think this woman approached Jesus because she knew that Jesus loved her. I think this fits the greater context in chapter 7, just looking at the two verses previously in verses 34 and 35, which says, that the Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And yet wisdom is justified by all her children. I can't see any other reason for why this woman approached Jesus than the fact that Jesus' love drew her in. And we know this about true repentance, that God's love is the basis for our repentance First John 4.19 says that we love, why? Because he first loved us. That God's loving kindness draws us into repentance, and this is the first step of biblical repentance. Elsewhere in the psalm, it says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. And so this woman demonstrates for us that the basis of repentance is, is God's character, that it's God's love. Now, I say that, and for for many of us, we think of God's love almost only in cliche. Like, we're almost always told that Christianity is about a relationship. It's not about a religion because God loves you. And yet, what does it really mean when we say that God loves us? That in a very narcissistic, me-centered culture, it's easy to confuse what it really means that God loves us. And I think it's really important to understand what it really means that God loves us if we want to understand repentance. Let me just read a story by by D.A. Carson in one of his commentaries that will help illustrate what it means that Jesus loves us. He says, "Picture, picture this. Picture Charles and Susan 
walking down a beach hand in hand at the end of the academic year, that the pressure of the school year was slowly fading in the warm evening breeze. They've kicked off their sandals, and the wet sand squishes between their toes. And so Charles turns to Susan, gazes deeply into her large hazel eyes, and says, Susan, I love you. I really do. Now, what does Charles mean by saying, I love you? Well, in our day and age, he may mean nothing more than just something physical, that he wants to kiss her or something like that. But let's just assume that Charles is a good guy. Let's say he's a strong Christian, and so he could mean something like this. Susan, you mean everything to me. I can't live without you. Your your smile transfixes me from 50 yards. Your sparkling good humor, your beautiful eyes, the scent of your hair, everything about you I love. He might mean that, but what he certainly does not mean is something like this. Susan, quite frankly, you have such a bad case of bad breath, it would embarrass a herd of unwashed garlic-eating elephants. That your nose is so large you belong in the cartoons. That your hair is so greasy it could lubricate an 18-wheeler. That your knees are so disjointed you make a camel look elegant. That your personality makes Attila the Hun and Genghis Khan look like wimps, but I love you. So if you're taking notes about uh, Valentine's Day coming up, that's not the thing to say. So now God comes to us and says, I love you. Now, what does God mean by that when he says that I love you? Does he mean something like this? You mean everything to me? I can't live without you, your personality, your witty conversation, your beauty, your smile. Everything about you transfixes me. Heaven would be boring without you. I love you. Is that what God means when he says that he loves us? I mean, if we were honest, that's pretty close what we tend to think when we hear that God loves me that we must be pretty wonderful because God loves me, that dear old God is up there in heaven and he's pretty vulnerable, finding himself in a dreadful state unless we say yes to his love, that God is almost like this crazy ex-boyfriend desperate for our acceptance. And yet, I think biblically speaking, maybe more accurately speaking, I think understanding God's love sounds something like this. That morally speaking, You are the people of the bad breath, the oversized nose, the greasy hair, the disjointed knees, the horrible personality, that your sins have made you disgustingly ugly, but I love you anyway. Not because you're attractive or because I'm missing something without you or because you're so lovable, no, but because it is my nature to love. It's really really important to understand when we think about repentance and God's love being the foundation, that Jesus loves us not because of us, but despite us, because it's his nature to love us. And because he loves us, we're able to approach him in repentance because his love is not dependent on us. It's not dependent on our performance. And so when we commit sin, our first reaction is to go to him, not to run away. And this is what drew this woman into seeking where Jesus was and approaching him because she knew that God loved her. Number two is that this woman demonstrates repentance by breaking before him, by breaking before him. Let me uh, read uh, verse 38. 
It says, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now, not only do we see this woman repent by approaching Jesus, but she repents by breaking before him. Now, this scene gets really, really intense here as it continues to unfold. That this woman, we, we kind of have to lean into this scene and really picture it. This woman is losing it before Jesus. She has this alabaster jar of perfume and she just starts crying. She starts weeping uncontrollably on Jesus' feet. And she, as she's weeping, she starts to wipe her tears with her hair and, and, and Jesus' feet. And she's kissing Jesus' feet, pouring this expensive perfume on Jesus. This is not normal. This is really, really bizarre behavior. Like, this is almost embarrassing. Like, if we were there at this scene, we would be like, woman, like, you need to relax a little bit. Like, this isn't that big of a deal. And as we use our imagination trying to grasp this scene, we... This scene would be absolutely scandalous before Jesus. Jesus is a rabbi. This is in the presence of a Pharisee. And this woman is just losing it before him in tears and on the ground kissing his feet. What is she doing here? Well, she's showing her brokenness over her sin. But this woman like, just doesn't even care. Like, she doesn't care about her image she doesn't care about her reputation before the Pharisee, before Jesus. She doesn't care what other people think. She is clearly just broken over her sin. And when I was reading this and even preaching this last service, like just looking at this passage, I'm thinking, why is she reacting this way? Like, what is the big deal? And the more that I was asking those questions, the more I just felt like the Spirit of God asking me, Chris, is this how you react over your sin? Like, Chris, are, are you broken over your sin in the same way where, where you're just losing because you understand who you're sinning against? So I want to ask you this morning, are you, are you broken over your sin? Like when you sin and, and you start asking that now what question, does the reality of what happened that you offended the God of the universe who loves you, who sent his son to die for you, does that grip you? Is there a godly sorrow that, that fills your hearts. I think about 2 Corinthians 7.10 that says, For godly sorrow produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Or James 4.8-10 gives us a picture of repentance. It says, Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. As we think about what biblical repentance looks like, there has to be an aspect of being broken over our sin, of being filled with sorrow about it. And just by way of application for us this morning, there are very few things that reveal if we truly have accepted the gospel than understanding what we, what we immediately do after we sin. Just think about it for a moment. That What exactly is your first reaction after you sin? What's your first response? What's your, what's your knee-jerk reaction after you sin? That maybe for many of us, that we tend to believe that God is, is so furious at us, 
that God is about to crush us with his wrath, that maybe for some of us we think that, that we've lost God's love. And so maybe our first reaction is to think, man, I, I got to somehow go back and earn my status with God before I sin, because after I sin, I just lost his love. I lost his approval. So I need to go and recapture it. And for many of us, our knee-jerk reaction after we sin is to think, I need to go and do good works. I need to read my Bible, or I need to go do a good deed so that God can be happy with me again. See, when our first reaction is to think that way, what we are demonstrating is that our foundation of being accepted before God is found on our performance rather than on Jesus' performance. That when, if our knee-jerk reaction to sinning is to think, man, I've lost his love, then that reveals that you believe that God's love for you is dependent on your obedience. And so we don't see that with this woman. Her first reaction is not to go to the synagogue. It's not to perform good works to the poor. It's, it's not even to do her devotions. No, her first reaction is to directly go to Jesus as she's broken over her sin because her repentance was based on Jesus and not on herself. So is this how you react after your sin? Is this your first response is to first go to God who loves you, who is for you because of Christ, rather than thinking I need to go earn back something that I've lost? And I think that the reality of understanding that who we have sinned against does create this type of brokenness, not, not in a sense to beat ourselves up, but understanding that God sent Jesus, his perfect son, to die for us. And when we sin, we understand that that is what he died for. That whenever we sin, it, it's a reminder that Jesus died. He purchased us with his blood to pay for that sin. And so understanding that, that our sin led Jesus to die for us should create a seriousness about our sin, a type of brokenness whenever we do sin. That we can't be flippant with our sin or presume over God's grace by taking advantage of God's grace. It's not that we just swipe the grace card, but that there is a sincere brokenness because we understand that it took Jesus to die to pay for it. That our disregard for taking sin seriously will be seen in our lack of desperation for Jesus. That we can see that this woman's desperate need for Jesus because we see her brokenness over her sin. Well, not only that, but number three, she also repents <clears throat> by sacrificing to him, by sacrificing to him. So this picture of repentance, this woman not only approaches Jesus, not only is broken over her sin, but she repents by sacrificing to him. Let me read verse 38 again. It says, and standing behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wipe them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. And so this picture of repentance that this woman gives here just continues on. That we also see her repenting by, by sacrificing to Jesus. So let me get a little bit more specific with the scene of, of what's going on here. That this woman has this alabaster flask that in Mark 14, Mark describes it as an, as an alabaster jar. 
Okay, so this jar is by far the most expensive thing that this woman had. This wasn't a little cup. This wasn't just uh, a, little, uh, a little basket of something. This is a flask. This is an alabaster jar. And some scholars believe that it was worth over a whole year's worth of income. That Mark 14, 3, it says that this woman broke this jar to pour this expensive perfume on Jesus. Imagine that, that as you see this scene unfold, that this woman who wasn't invited to this dinner comes and she's broken over her sin and she takes this jar, the most expensive thing that she has, and she breaks it open and pours the perfume on Jesus. I really believe that this woman wanted to give Jesus uh, this alabaster jar as, as a gift to him. But I think the more that the reality of her sin just hit her, the more that she just broke down and poured out this perfume onto Jesus. But let, me, let me tell you what this jar represented for this woman. That this jar represented her livelihood. That all of the, the sleeping with men night after night was very much dependent on this perfume. That this perfume created a, a sense of attraction to other men. But this jar not only represented her livelihood, but this jar of perfume represented her shame. That men, day in and day out, came to her, and this perfume gave her an attraction in order to make money. And yet, what do we see this woman doing with this jar? She, she breaks it over. And, and pours it onto Jesus, the most expensive thing that she had, this thing that represented her sin and her shame, and she sacrifices and she gives it over to Jesus. She just gives it up. Look, I know it might, might be strange when we're talking about, <clears throat> about repentance to bring up this issue of sacrifice, and yet many of us know all too well how hard it is to give up sin, how hard it is to repent and turn from a pattern of living that God does not desire. And it's so hard that I think it's appropriate to talk about repentance in the sense of, of really giving up, sacrificing our sin to Jesus. And I think if we were honest, the reason why it's so hard is because there are parts of us that love our sin. Like we love what sin gives us, that sin comforts us, sin gives us security, that sin gives us almost a form of escapism. And so we sometimes develop this really weird relationship with sin where on one level we know that God hates it, and yet on the other hand, on the other hand, we kind of like the benefits that sin provides. And so talking about repentance, we have to understand that we have to give up the sin. We have to sacrifice the sin because God is worth it. So we see this woman who takes her alabaster jar, this jar that represents her sinful lifestyle, and she pours it on to Jesus. Man, what a, what a powerful picture of repentance. I just want to ask you this morning, what, what is the alabaster jar in your life today? What is it in your life that, that has a grip on your life, that, that represents your sin? What is that thing that you... You just can't seem to give up and sacrifice to Jesus. What is it that you, that you go to when you're down? That, what is it that you go to that you run for comfort instead of running to Christ? Can you imagine for a moment, just use your imagination, this isn't in the text, but imagine for a moment if this woman 
approaches Jesus and she has this alabaster jar in her hand, the most expensive thing that she owns, this thing that represents her shame, her past, sin, everything about her. What if she comes to Jesus and, and she approaches him and she's weeping, she's broken over her sin, but she refuses to give up the alabaster jar? Just imagine for a moment what, what Jesus would have done in that moment. Like, she's, like Jesus has this woman who's, who's on her feet and just weeping, just broken over her sin, but she's, she's got that alabaster jar in one hand, and she's refusing to give this up, this thing that represents her shame and her sin. I just wonder if Jesus would just bend down to her and whisper in her ear that I am so much better than that jar. I just wonder if Jesus would say, I am so much better than your sin. That I'm so much better than, than the shame of your past. That I, my grace is bigger than whatever jar it is that, that's represented in your life. And so how, how about you this morning? Are you holding on to your jar, just unwilling to give it up because you're, you're not completely convinced that Jesus is better? That maybe you are broken over your sin. Maybe, maybe there are tears in your life over your sin, but you're unwilling to sacrifice and actually give up your sin. That are you truly convinced that Jesus is better than your sin? I think when we start talking about sacrifice in Christianity, we tend to think that God is always calling us to sacrifice for something worse that we think that God is asking us to give up something and in exchange we receive something lower than when we had before. And yet what this woman is demonstrating before us is that she was just completely convinced that Jesus was better than her alabaster jar, that Jesus was better than anything. And I think we have to be convinced of that if we want to understand biblical repentance, that Jesus is better. Number four here, that this woman gives us a picture of repentance by accepting Jesus' forgiveness. By accepting Jesus' forgiveness. Look with me at, at verse uh, 47. <clears throat> Jesus says, Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. So as this scene continues to unfold, uh, Simon the Pharisee says to himself, man, if Jesus were a prophet, if he would know what kind of woman this is, then, then he would not be extending the kind of love and grace to her. He says, he says this because of the ritual purity that this woman was violating in a typical meal setting in this context. And so Jesus responds to, to Simon the Pharisee's thoughts here with a story of these two men who owed money to a landowner, that one owed what would be equivalent to a month's income, and another owed what would be equivalent to a whole year's income. And so the landowner uh, cleared both of their debts. So Jesus asked uh, Simon the Pharisees, which one would love the landowner more? And Simon gets the answer correct. And then Jesus explains how much this sinful woman has just adored him, has loved him, cleaning his feet with her tears, her hair, perfume, and kissing them. And so he says in verse 47, her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who has been forgiven little loves 
little. And then verse 48 comes. And you read verse 48, and he says, he says, your sins are forgiven. Man, you read that, and I don't know about you, but I read that, and I'm just, I'm just struck by those words. Like, your sins are forgiven. I, I don't know if you can hear the words of Jesus saying that to your heart today, but, but your sins, even if they're great, are forgiven. Can you hear Jesus saying that to you this morning? That no matter what's in your past, no matter what's in your present, no matter what your struggles are, no matter what, what's, uh, what your secrets are, that Jesus' grace, Jesus' love is bigger than all of your sin. That Jesus wants to say that to you this morning, that your sins are forgiven. I love Daryl Bach in his commentary on Luke in this passage. He, he puts it this way. He says that the story of this sinful woman teaches a crucial lesson about the depth of love for God. That the greater our sense that God has dealt with us in mercy, the greater love we will have for him in return. That if our love for God is cold, it may well be because we have come to think he owes it to us, not that he paid our debts. That the gospel is like a banker walking up to us when we cannot pay our mortgage. And rather than foreclosing, he writes a check that pays off the debt. And so if you met a banker like that, you would always be grateful to him and tell your friends all about him. That God is the spiritual banker who has paid our debt of sin through Jesus and extends forgiveness. And I think the deeper we realize that he has dealt with us out of mercy in the midst of our disobedience, the greater will be our response of love. And so some of us here this morning, there, there are things that you might have done this weekend. There are things that are going on in your life. And for whatever reason, you think that your sin is greater than God's forgiveness. And I just want to tell you that that is a lie from the enemy. That is the accuser of the brethren who is saying to you that you have out God's love for you, but nothing could be further from the truth. And if you're here today and you're not a Christian, and you've kind of wandered in here, maybe you're dragged here by a friend, and you're thinking, can this really be true? Is God's love this great? Is God's forgiveness this amazing? Yes. Yes, it is. And in fact, if you're not a Christian, I just want to, I just want to encourage you and challenge you to come to this Savior, come to this Jesus, and give your life over to him in faith and in trust and in repentance, giving up your sin and coming to him in salvation. That verse 48 can be true of you, that your sins are forgiven. So if you're here today and you're not a Christian, you're wondering, like, man, like that Jesus is so attractive. I want more of him. And, and you've got questions. I'm going to be right down here towards the front. Just come grab me. would love to talk with you about what that looks like. But we have to understand this. If you're a believer or not a believer, that the foundation of our repentance is Jesus saying your sins are forgiven and receiving that forgiveness and believing him at his word. So this woman repents by by accepting Jesus' forgiveness. Then number five here, the last thing that she does to demonstrate repentance is she repents by actually changing. She repents by changing. Look with me at verse 50. We can't miss the last verse here where it says, and Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. 
go in peace. So finally, we see that this woman repents by changing. That in verse 50, Jesus declares that her faith has saved her and commands her to go in peace. In other words, go and live in wholeness. Go and live the way that I have prescribed for you to live that leads to everlasting joy and life. What Jesus does not say here is that your faith has saved you. Keep swiping the grace card. Keep treating sin like it's no big deal. No, he says, go and and live in peace. In other words, go and live in godliness. Go and live pursuing holiness, which is whole living. We see that this woman, he, she completes her demonstration of repentance by going and living a life changed because of Jesus. I love how Joel Green in his commentary uh, kind of sums up this passage. He says, Jesus' fundamental concern in these verses is with this woman's restoration to the community of God's people, that she's presented as already behaving in ways that grow out of her new life as Jesus speaks of a restoration to wholeness. Look, we can't forget that this is, this is a necessary step in repentance. It's a great reminder for us. Because I think sometimes we think that repentance is only thinking that what we did wrong is bad. Like, we just want to feel remorse. We just want to feel bad about the sin, and then we're good. Or we think that repentance is only confessing to God. That if I can just confess my sin to God, then that's repentance. And yet, there's more to it than, than those two things. That feeling remorse and confessing the sin are two necessary aspects of biblical repentance. But repentance, biblically, is also about changing. That it's about turning. It's, it's changing your mind and changing your affections and changing your behavior. It's thinking differently about your sin. It's thinking about sin from God's perspective. Look, there's nothing more than, than what the enemy wants than for us just to feel bad about our sin, and that's it. I mean, there's nothing more than what the enemy wants than for us just to confess sin and yet still live in that sin. And yet biblical repentance is feeling remorse. It is confessing, but it's also turning. It's also being convinced that Jesus is greater, Jesus is better, and demonstrating that by leaving the sin behind and running after Jesus. And yet, just want to give us a warning here that as we talk about changing, as we talk about putting to death sin, I think we need to be careful about what the goal of repentance actually is. I think that there's a danger in misunderstanding that the goal of the Christian life is just about behavior modification, that it's just all about looking prettier on the outside. And so sometimes we can almost treat Jesus as a means to our own end of repentance, to think that what I really want is just to kick some bad habits, that what I really want is just to look a little bit more cleaned up on the outside, and it's so easy to use Jesus as a means to that end, that we just want to turn over a new leaf, and so Jesus can help me do that. I think misunderstanding the goal of repentance is so easy for us because, look, we we would rather just rebrand ourselves than actually repent. I think that's because we love our statuses. Like, we'd rather just change things on the external than change things internally because in our culture, in our day and age, we are obsessed with status. 
professional status, relational status, social status, even social media status. I mean, even our status before God, we love. And I think one of the biggest misconceptions about repentance is thinking that I need to go back to where I was before I sinned, that I need to change and turn my life back to what it was before because somehow I lost my status when I sinned. That reality is the thing that consistently trips us up in the Christian life, that when we sin, we believe the lie that we have lost God's love for us, that we've lost God's acceptance. And yet if you're in Christ, if you're a follower of Jesus, you didn't become accepted by by God because of you. You were accepted because of Jesus. And so look, you can't lose your status. You can't lose God's love for you because look, you didn't earn it to begin with. It's all because of Jesus and his perfect righteousness that covers you, that God looks at you and says, yes, I accept you because you are hidden in Jesus according to Colossians 3. I think when we find ourselves idolizing our status, we, we, we fall into this trap. And yet as we turn to just concluding our time together, we have to be reminded that Jesus has already purchased our status on the cross. He's already done what we couldn't. That on the cross, Jesus not only paid for our sin, he endured the wrath of God in our place. And so by faith, we trust in Jesus. He gives us and he purchased for us complete approval, complete love, and complete acceptance before the Father for us. And so what that does, when we understand that our acceptance is found on Jesus, it's not that, okay, I can sin all the more. No, no, no. We can read Romans 6 on that. That's not the type of response we should have, but because we've been accepted in Jesus, we have now the correct motives to fight off and repent of sin because our repentance of sin doesn't lead us to acceptance. Our repentance of sin is an act of love and thankfulness to God the Father for purchasing our salvation because of Jesus. Look, motives matter with repentance. If you're repenting sin from sin, in order to earn God's love, you're going to be trapped in sin because that burden you were never meant to carry. But if you repent from sin with the foundation and the motivation that your approval in Jesus has already purchased and you can't lose that, that's going to give you the correct motives to turning from sin because Jesus is truly your Savior. And so as we, as we close today and uh, as we think about biblical repentance. Look, we all, we, all need to, we all need to hear this message. Like even as I'm preaching this, like feeling the spirit of God just like reveal things in my own heart, in my own life that I need to turn from or I need to, I need to tweak my motives or I need, to, I need to rearrange my loves in my heart. And on a Sunday in which the technology fails us and in a Sunday in which we full-heartedly believe in the sovereignty of God, that there's a reason why this idea of biblical repentance is before us today. And so as we close, I just want to give us just a couple of moments just between you and the Lord. And I want you to wrestle with this question of what arena in your life do you need to repent of today? Like what area of your life does God look at and say, that's not mine yet? Like, what is it that you're, that you're holding on to? Maybe, maybe that represents your alabaster jar that you haven't broken over 
before God and, and full-heartedly, biblically repented by following these five steps. I just want to give us just a couple of moments just to wrestle with God and, and confess things and commit things and to turn from sin. And, and then I'll close this in, in a word of prayer. So let's just, let's just do that right now, just a couple of moments before you and the Lord. God, we give you praise that your word does not come back void. God, we thank you for that promise. We thank you that the authority of your word lies not in a polished manuscript, but it, it's in your words, God. And Lord, I pray that we have felt that and we've experienced that today. And Lord, I pray as we wrestle through just a, a weighty and a, um, a hard topic of repentance, God, I pray that you would protect us from repenting out of guilt today. God, I pray that you would protect us from the voice of the enemy who wants to accuse the brethren. But Lord, I, I thank you for the words of Jesus who said on the cross that it is finished that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, that there is no more wrath left because Jesus endured it all. And yet, Lord, we want to be a people that, that represent you well in the world. God, we want to be a godly people, a people that, that is holy, that is set, set apart from culture, from this world. We, we truly want to live as exiles. And Lord, that means that we need to repent daily of our sin. And so, God, I pray that you would help us not just to rebrand ourselves on the external, but to truly repent from the inside out. So, God, we need your help in that. We pray that your spirit would continue to massage these truths into our soul. Lord, help us to be a changed people, I pray, for the glory of Jesus. And in his name I pray, amen.